0: It's uh, a nice, uh, positive, upbeat trade waiters today. Do we have...
1: uh... It's
2: raining. (laughs) It's
1: a sleepy Monday.
0: Do we have a made-up excuse for where Jess is? Uh, Oh, yeah. Jess has uh, declared her apartment uh, a nation unto itself, and she's currently at war with the Canadian government. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> you say that as a joke, but there are people who are actually who actually believe things like that. Classic Jess. <laughs> yeah, she she declared her
0: apartment an embassy for the nation state of Jess.
3: And she just picks <laughs> random pieces of paper and waves them at people and says, "This is proof. I, I wrote stuff on a piece of paper." No, well they
0: have they have uh, Canadian postage stamps on them. Oh, and that, that makes, makes them legal yeah. legal tender. Right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just recently went on like a big binge watch of Sovereign Citizens uh, at traffic stops. It's like pretty
4: oh fascinating. Oh my god, no. I, I, can't, I can't watch that stuff. It makes me too angry.
3: My favorite are Micronations. Micronations are the best. Are they? Are yeah. they the best? Yes, they are. A bunch of rich people move to an island and decide they're going to have a libertarian paradise, and then no one wants to actually defend their made-up nation from the country that actually owns that land it's great so they always lose (laughs) agreed (laughs) anyways Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Uh, what's today's episode? Today's
0: episode is Louis Real by Chester Brown. Should I start with our character revealing question? Yes. Sure. Okay. Character
1: building question. So the
0: <laughs> character building question, um, I originally was actually just going to ask all of you to name your favorite heritage minute, but then I thought <laughs> that that's actually very generationally specific. So <laughs> I would like you to just uh, introduce yourself and then name any Canadian either historical figure, celebrity, or event in Canadian history that you have an affinity for or fondness for. So just your little piece of Canadiana that you want to, I don't know, shout out, I guess.
2: <laughs> shout out, shout <laughs> out to Canadiana. Okay.
3: All right, I'm going to go because this is right up my alley. Uh, I'm Jonathan, and I was actually just tweeting the other day how I would like to, at some point in my career, write a graphic novel about the Winnipeg 1919 general strike, because I feel like it's a pivotal moment in Canadian history that a lot of Canadians have not even heard of. Ah, interesting. Okay.
1: (laughs) I have never learned a thing in my life. This is hard. Um, (laughs) My name's Kay Gross, and uh, one of my favorite local things is I really like Craig Derrick Castle in Victoria, which is this castle-ish mansion that a coal baron, I believe, built. But he died before it was completed, so his family didn't live there very long. Um, And it was, uh, at various times, a hospital, a university, a music school. At one point... They were selling off all the land around the building, and no one would buy the castle. So they did a random lottery for if you bought a plot of land, you would get your name put in to get the (laughs) castle because nobody wanted it. Nice. Um, And it's really cool inside because all the the original furnishings were all auctioned off when, when the family no longer lived there, but people who are restoring it found um an auction catalog from the original auction so they're able to source a lot of if not the same pieces very similar pieces and sort of figure out how it would have been furnished originally at the time so yeah i like that it's fun it's like casaloma but decorated better oh (laughs) because casaloma in toronto uh they ran out of money halfway through because the depression (laughs) hit and it there's a lot of it that just doesn't look great cuz i never finished it. Like there's a uh, swimming pool in the basement that is just a concrete hole. <laughs> <laughs> it
4: sounds like my swimming pool. <laughs> I'm going to go on a bit of a different tack, but what interests me about Canadian history, not not the only thing, but the thing that sticks out to me is the concept of Expo, the World Fair.
2: Hmm. And
4: in Vancouver that was Expo 86. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I like from a retro nostalgia perspective, but I have no actual attachment to. Because I came to Vancouver in the 2000s, mm. uh, originally, and you could see all this Expo 86 stuff, and it means nothing to me, right? <laughs> but I love all of the iconography, and like Science World came out of that, and the original Skytrain came out of that, and I, I'm just... I like seeing little bits of it. And what's interesting to me is that I can, ref- re- I can relate that back to my experiences growing up in Montreal, where mm. we had Expo 67. Mm. And Montreal has a bunch of really weird buildings from that expo as well. So I like the idea that Canada was once a country that didn't have a lot in the way of reputation worldwide. And we would... You know, get these expos and Olympics and to us, and it was always such a big deal. And there are all these cultural relics of those times. The world is paying attention. The world's paying attention. Don't screw up. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> uh, that's oh, that's really interesting because I was born in 1980, so I have very, very fond memories of being six years old, going on a I think weekly basis with my parents to the expo fairgrounds, mm, and very good. that's like indelibly imprinted on my memory. Uh, And it's funny because I often hear people who are a little older than me lament the horrible changes that happened in Vancouver after 86. And yet when I see photos and hear references of pre-86 Vancouver, that's an alien landscape I have no reference for. But Essentially, you mentioned Montreal because I recently was in Montreal and they've preserved their Expo fairgrounds much better than we have. And it's sort of fascinating how that... Is really close to the Olympic Fairgrounds, and everyone I talked to, and this is I could, this just could be my sample set, but everyone I talked to in Montreal, like universally reviled and hated everything about the Olympics, and wanted all of those buildings torn down. Yes, and everyone at the same token loved those Expo buildings and would would defend them with their life. Like those Expo grounds (laughs) need to stay forever, so that people can wander the the expo fairgrounds, even though there's vines growing over everything now and it's covered in moss, like those have to be preserved so people can wander through and go, yes, in 67, the world was paying attention. <laughs> to Montreal. Yeah. No, it,
4: it's such a bizarre thing to me because I, 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 I never saw that happen when I traveled through the States. Hmm. Like the expo, mm. it's just not a big deal. And well, maybe... there was the
3: Chicago World's yeah. Fair was a big deal. But well, what are, what are the Fair.
4: physical relics?
3: They don't have any physical relics, right? but there's like a a sort of a, it it feels like it has the same or similar cultural relevance to Chicago and to the US that uh, Expo 67 has to Montreal and Canada.
4: Okay. Hmm. So anyway, I'm Jam, and I'm a nerd for World's Fairs. (laughs) There we go. I like it.
3: Yeah. Uh, So I'm
0: Jeff Ellis and uh, I watched a documentary a a long time ago by Douglas Copeland called Canada House. Oh yeah. He was building a house full of Canadiana, and he sort of referenced a lot of different interesting periods in Canada's time period, but the one I found the most fascinating was that in the late 70s, under, like, the original Trudeau, uh, there was a movement to create a canadian culture like artificially manufacture like a government sanctioned (laughs) canadian culture to distinguish itself from the americans
3: that's a part of our heritage right there yeah manufacturing our own culture i
0: I want (laughs) i want i want the heritage minute for this uh but yeah so they at some point the government proposed that instead of saying hello we should say chimo to each other that would be the greeting because you would say chimo and it would be uh, like a um aloha so it was meant to be a hello and goodbye and you'd say chimo to all your friends and then they also had this little bird creature called an ook and that was like the mascot of canada and uh man anytime i see an ook pick i'm just like oh wow there's still like little bits of this left over
2: <laughs>
0: yeah it's just this bizarre time in our heritage that we totally are, like, trying to bury and pretend never happened. Well, uh, I'm, I'm Chimo, fascinated with it. Chimo to you all, good <laughs> listeners. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Uh, okay, so uh, should we say Chimo to this comic book?
2: <laughs>
0: uh, Let's. <laughs> okay, maybe before we actually talk about Louis Real the comic, I was going to just pull up a little bit of information. I pulled this off Wikipedia, but about Chester Brown, the author. So, the whole book was done, uh, written, drawn by Chester Brown. He is a Canadian cartoonist who went through like a variety of different stylistic periods in his cartooning career. Uh, So, he started out in alternative comics in the 1980s with a series called Ed the Happy Clown, which is like a really surreal, bizarro, and probably like really i don't know offensive like indie, independent comic series which he eventually just like killed off and ended and then he switched over in the 1990s to doing autobiographical comics and he became really good friends with fellow toronto-based cartoonist seth and joe matt during this period he produced the playboy and i never liked you among i think those are really like the two prominent autobiographical materials he did and then After that, he actually rocketed into the public eye with his Louis Real comic in 2003, which we are going to talk about today. And since then, he also has made two other graphic novels, Paying for It and Mary Wept Over the Feet of Jesus, uh, both talking about uh, prostitution. uh, The first one dealing kind of with his actual kind of autobiographical dealings with being a John who uh, has a regular prostitute in his life. And the second, I think, referencing prostitutes in the Bible, and discussing kind of uh, maybe that prostitution should be legalized. I think was sort of the premise of that book. What
1: do you, do you think? That's his stance. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't
0: read that book. I've read. read um, I've read all of his other work. I have not read his most recent, his 2016 book. And uh, Louis Reale is probably one of my favorite uh, works that he's done. Though I always or remember the first time I read the playboy because that was the first time I'd ever read an autobiographical comic. And I was really struck with the, I don't know, I don't really want to say courage, but in a way I just like have to say courage to just like put yourself out there to that level to like share such personal and intimate things about your life with a large audience of people. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be able to do that. I couldn't, be that honest with with, uh, with my work and so I was really just struck with how much he just sort of lets it all hang out in his work and doesn't seem to care what people think about him in the work that he creates and uh, I think that uh, yeah, Louis Real is probably his most I, don't know, I feel like it's his most accessible work just because it's sort of this historical book that's done in a very different style from a lot of his other work um, and that's why I wanted to cover it for Trade Waiters today I don't know if anyone has any other uh, things to add on Chester Brown.
3: This is the only book of his I've read, so oh. I have nothing to add. The All same. Right.
1: Oh. Oh, I've read several of his other <laughs> books. Sorry, I was being a little bit of a jerk about paying for it, but like half that book is just an essay on why prostitution should be legal. Yeah. Um. So that is very <laughs> his very strong stance. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> I was more meaning the, the, I read Paying For It, so yes, that's absolutely true. I hadn't read the second book, but people were telling me like, oh yeah, that's just more of the same from Paying For It. Yes, I (laughs) can only
1: assume. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've read, I can't remember if I've read The Playboy, but I know I've read I I Never Liked You. Yeah, I'm paying for it. And I don't know, of him, Joe, Matt, and Seth, uh, I prefer the other's work. Hmm. Um, But yeah, he appears quite a bit in Joe Matt's work because they they're all sort of, like, making comics in Toronto at the same time. Um, and That's kind of fun,
4: though. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's interesting to, like, read their different, like, auto-bio where they overlap, and, like, um, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken by Seth has both of them in it, and then... Joe Matt. If like if I don't know if you read Joe Matt at all, Jeffrey.
0: That's the only of those three that I haven't read. Okay, so I've well read a lot of Seth and Chester Brown. felt
1: that Chester Brown was courageous in the way that he portrays himself. <laughs> oh boy, you're gonna love Joe Matt because he portrays himself in the most disgusting disgusting way, yeah. Um, I see. I, just I, like, I, and I say it's <laughs> coming from sort of like I enjoy some of Joe Matt's work, but like, who, boy, would never want to meet him? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I want to come back to the the word courageous because I just can't think of a better word. Which is mm-hmm. just, I, I just, I do respect the ability to put that much of yourself on display, whether what you put on display is.
4: You, like, you can truly
0: res- worth like the sacrifice yeah. but- <laughs> respect
4: but maybe not recommend yeah it.
3: <laughs> it was also a question of um, journalistic accuracy just because you are portraying yourself in a negative light I mean I can see that that's a very courageous thing to do to have anyone who reads this book think poorly of you afterwards but mm. not necessarily an indication of who you might be if they met you in person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh no, that's absolutely true. Uh, like I find the idea of of truth and like <laughs> persona in autobiographical mm. comics fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Because like I don't know, I don't personally I don't think that the truth matters, mm. um, mm-hmm. but also it
4: does at the yeah. same time. <laughs> and uh, self-deprecation can just be another type of
2: mask. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, that's mm-hmm. true.
4: So that's there true. is a a tendency or something that may happen in autobio where you make a portrayal so raw and so negative that it's actually overshooting the truth.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I've often I've often heard, not not just like, I haven't heard necessarily in, in the context of Chester Brown, but I've heard with other cartoonists, people will say, oh man, like this artist portrays himself so badly. And then when I met them at a convention, they seemed okay. They didn't seem as bad <laughs> as they make themselves look in their bio work. So... It is kind of something that happens in, in, car, in comics. Um, one, one other quick sort of side note I was going to mention is that in paying for it, he has footnotes like he has in Louis Real. And in all the scenes where he talks to his friends, he gave his friends a chance to respond and only Seth took him up on it. But if you read paying for it, you can read like paragraphs of writing from Seth responding <laughs> to the content of how he's depicted in that work.
4: <laughs> wow. Yeah. And
0: I did say I really appreciated that as
4: the a mechanism yeah. for
0: journalistic integrity, I guess. Yeah, I think it's yeah
1: in, an interesting way to be somewhat transparent, kind of. Um, yeah, I don't know. As someone who makes autobio or has in the past, every once in a while, the question of, like, can I tell this story? And, like, how do the other people involved... How would they feel about it, and do I have to get their permission, and sort of that. So I think that, that is interesting to be like, well, you know, I wrote a book, and you can write your own book, or you can write footnotes in my book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: I appreciated I appreciated that he was willing to print those words in his footnotes.
3: Yeah. Um, Alright, can we do just, like, a really quick summary of the the plot? Yes. Before we get into yes. responses do you, to
0: it? Mm-hmm. Do, did you want to...
3: Uh, I can, or... Um, sure. I'm just turning to you with your history
0: <laughs> background. You yeah. give yeah, us yeah. the quick quick broad strokes of the history. Mr. Dom, yeah. <laughs> about
4: Canadian history. This okay. is the great curriculum. <laughs> and perhaps to our American listeners or listeners from farther abroad who have never had any exposure to Canadian history.
2: Hmm.
3: Yeah. Um I do think that this book pretty effectively covers the events uh, of the Riel Rebellion and of Louis Riel's life like I'm not someone from outside Canada, so I can't say for sure that you would be able to understand it in a uh, another context, but there are some like general sort of uh background things that might be important to understand this way, but I think it pretty much covers the events pretty effectively uh, so anyways, in the uh, eighteen sixties, uh, Canada was Uh, had only recently been given home rule from Britain. It was still technically part of the British Empire, but we had a parliament, we had a prime minister, and the new Canadian government was looking to expand its borders, partly in competition with the United States, because that's what the United States was doing. And so they quote-unquote bought um, Rupert's land from the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, which was this gigantic swath of territory, basically all the territory that is the watershed for the Hudson's Bay, which is like, that's half of Canada. They bought that from the like crown company that owned, quote-unquote, owned that land and had not set foot in most of it. And problem was there were people living there. And some of the people who were living there were the Métis, who were um, of mixed heritage with uh, English, French and First Nations ancestry. And uh, so because they're kind of in this liminal spot where the Canadian government doesn't feel like they can completely ignore them like they would the, the native population, they have to find some way to, to deal with these people who live there because they're settled, they have farms, they, their lifestyle is similar enough to the rest of Canada that uh, there, there are going to be legal consequences if they do nothing. Uh, so the the people who live there, the Métis, choose a leader for themselves, Louis Riel, uh, who just happens to be someone who's handy and speaks English, so he can deal with the um, the Canadian government. And there's a lot of sort of political wrangling, uh, but it's very sort of frontier politics, where a lot depends on like who is physically in control of what spaces. Uh, can you like block the surveyors from showing up and like making a map of your land and for the first half of the story, most of the players involved are trying to avoid bloodshed, uh, with limited success. But the, a lot of this is sort of legal, or it's political in the sense that they have like uh, makeshift elections and makeshift trials, and they're trying to like establish a, a society that can deal with uh, a Western-style democracy. And there's a lot of like political tensions going on. Uh, there is a English. Settler Thomas Scott, who is executed by the Métis, they hold a a trial for him, uh, and that this incenses the anglophone population of Canada. They sort of turn him into a martyr, and then they're they're out for blood. Uh, All the meanwhile, uh, the Prime Minister uh, Johnny Macdonald, who is Canada's first Prime Minister, uh, who I will have much to say about in this episode, I think, (laughs) um, is trying to sort of like get his way, but. In the context where he is a democratically elected leader and has to deal with the voters down the road so he can't upset french voters too much he doesn't want to upset english voters too much he has to find a way to get what he wants with this sort of like negotiation and backroom deals and a lot of shady dealings and eventually the metis get a province uh, which becomes named manitoba and everything seems like it's all set. The the one part of what they have to do, though, is that uh, Louis Riel gets exiled to the United States. Uh, and then things don't go well after that. Canada does not keep its end of the bargain. Uh, and so the Métis have like moved further west, and they're trying to start another independent state. And that also doesn't go very well. They get Louis Riel back into Canada to lead them. Uh, he has decided that he is a religious leader and that he is the the next prophet and that um, this is what will give them the power to sort of create this independent state. But they're outgunned by the Canadian military and Louis Riel gets arrested and he has a trial and uh, he is hanged for treason.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty...
3: That was not very succinct.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's that that covered all the okay. important important points. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I obviously I like this, which is why I recommended it. Right. Uh impressions
4: from the group. So, the first thing that I wanted to say is that uh I'm not a fan of history. I have a really <laughs> difficult time accessing historical stories, historical books. Uh, And I read a tweet recently, I forget who made it, but someone lamenting the fact that comics is such a powerful medium and could be used for so many other purposes than just the fiction and commonly autobio that it's used for. And history, I think, is one of these things where comics works really, really well. So I found this work quite accessible. You always have to be, as John mentioned, you always have to be a bit careful about, you know, how the author is coloring the events, which is true of any historical work. But I, I found it a nice way to digest, where you could relate the picture of the person to, like, what they are doing in space and time. And I felt like it lent a really good atmosphere. Like, if I was reading this in prose, for example, it would have been really difficult for me to understand the or or get a really concrete sense of how big and far apart everything was and how long it took for just information and people to travel back and forth. But I thought that was conveyed really well in this comic and mm-hmm. was really important to the events uh, as they unfolded.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely think this is one of my favorite examples of using a comic to explain a historical event. Because, I mean, I studied the Red River Rebellion and social studies, and I think I didn't understand it as well as I did after reading this book. Yeah. And that's, that's something I really enjoyed about it.
1: Yeah. Um, I used to read a lot more like historical stuff and I'm getting back into reading like biographies and things and I just came out of reading a different biography on somebody else so and I'm discovering that I, I quite like biographies uh, I think as a as a genre to read so this was interesting I read it in grade 8 because it was like one of the, one of the comics that related to the curriculum so my teacher was just like you like comics here <laughs> <laughs> and like gave it to me uh, and it was definitely great at the time and Yeah, it was really interesting um, reading it, again, um, sort of, like, looking at it from, like, where comics is now versus where it was then. And, like, I think uh, Brown mentions in his, like, introduction or his foreword that, like, people at the time mentioned it looked a bit like Tintin, but he was really going for, like, Orphan Annie, which, (laughs) like, yeah, I can really see that influence. I don't know. There's something about... The way he draws comics that I—I I don't know if it necessarily like appeals to me personally. Like it's, I think it's doing the things he wants it to do, but that doesn't necessarily like intersect with what I want to read as a reader. Um, like there's something sort of static about his shots, even when there's movement in them. So I don't know. It was a little dry, <laughs> maybe for me. But um, like, yeah, I mean, comics and um, history go very well together. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would have been way more lost just reading this in prose form because I know every time I try to read, like, nonfiction books, it takes me a good chunk of it to, like, remember who is who and what are the, like, significances of these things. Yeah. And, yeah.
3: All right. Um, This is the second time I've read this book, and I think I enjoyed it even more the second time through, maybe because I know a little bit more of the historical context for the story. Uh, And it's – I'm sure that Chester Brown and I – don't have very much politics in common at all. But I really like his take on these events. Uh, I especially like the way he portrayed Johnny MacDonald. Like, this totally fits with everything I know about (laughs) our first prime minister and the guy whose face is on the $10 bill. Not anymore. Oh, what?
4: Yeah. Yeah, new $10 bill. The new $10 bill is
0: going to have... Henrietta... uh, Yeah, Henrietta...
3: All right, good, because oh, screw that guy. He's a a-hole. <laughs> Not <laughs> a fan of John A. McDonald here. <laughs> I mean,
0: man, I feel bad. I feel bad for forgetting the name of who replaced John A McDonald, but it's um Hang on. A civil rights oh, activist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, also New forget Luke her name, Brunswick, but I, I think? know
3: I know who she is. She has a heritage minute.
4: Oh yeah. Uh
3: this is why we Viola, need Viola
4: Desmond. Well, Viola, Viola Desmond. There you
2: go.
3: Desmond. Yeah. This is why we need books about Canadian history because Canadians don't know our own history. It's true. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: This, like, yeah. for for the sake of um, people from away, uh, Louis the Real Rebellion is similar in uh, context to uh, it's basically as close as Canada gets to our Civil War. Like hmm. a lot of the sort of the cultural forces coming together and then, like, one side succeeding over another. Uh, and Louis Riel, there are still people who see Louis Riel as, like, flat out a villain and other people for whom he is their, sort of their champion. Um,
2: mm.
3: I'm not, I don't want to make too big an analogy between Louis Riel and the, the South because they are obviously very, very different. But uh, it carries about that much weight in Canadian history as the Civil War word for the for U.S. history.
0: Mm. That, um, I, I'm not sure how I feel about that analogy, <laughs> just because like recently when I was in Winnipeg, I, uh, took a photo of this wonderful giant stoic Louis Riel statue that they have in their city. Uh, so I think he is definitely like a, a folk hero in, in the city of Winnipeg. Well,
3: I, I think... Unlike, say, Andrew Jackson, <laughs> uh, Louis Riel deserves to be a folk hero. Uh, that's my personal opinion, <laughs> that I am also correct.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to argue with you about Andrew Jackson, that's for sure. So, um, I, I would say that maybe, obviously, there's not enough people that think he's a villain that they are asking for the statue to be removed. Mm, more people that's, seem in that's favor of... That statue's <laughs>
2: not in Ontario. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. fair
0: enough.
4: And I don't know, right? I don't know if whether Louis Riel as a villain is something that people in the East actually feel anymore, or whether it's yeah, just a meme. that's fair. You know, uh-huh. that was repeated of, like, Louis Riel, bad guy. And mm. so they grow up, they're like, Louis Riel, bad guy, and they never look mm-hmm. into it one way or the mm-hmm. other. Mm. And you actually look into
1: it, and you're like, hmm, maybe, maybe the reason people think he's a bad guy is because they're racist, and... Um, <laughs> They don't believe in te- treating the Indigenous people of Canada fairly. <laughs> like, yeah. maybe. I don't know. Just, I'm, yeah. not, I'm just oh, throwing no. it out there. And I
3: think that comes across very effectively in this book, uh, which I'm really happy about because I think this is an important part of Canadian history. And I think putting it in the context of a biography is a great way of getting across how Canada became a country and that it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Mm-hmm, definitely.
4: Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. Like, the land we are on today is unceded territory. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, this book just served as, like, a good reminder that Canada does not treat its indigenous people (laughs) well. And that is really garbage.
0: Yeah. I I definitely found, like, yeah, reading this a second time... It's funny, I think reading this a second time, it felt a little drier to me than the first time I read it. But I also definitely found that it still is a really fascinating chapter in Canadian history that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And it felt like something important that a lot of people should be more aware of. And in terms of like just the, uh, we're talking about a little bit of the stiff art. I actually sort of have been looking at Chester Brown's work and its evolution. And I think when he started out with his um, auto bio and even his like um, Ed the clown stuff, it was very detailed and expressive work And he's been slowly working towards these really tiny, dispassionate, stiff figures that he's pulling the camera further and further away and simplifying people more and more. And often, like, you don't really even get a facial expression in a lot of the shots. It's just, like, two dots for eyes and, like, a line for the mouth. And uh, my impression is that I... You guys can tell me what you think of this, but I sort of feel like he's intentionally... Draining the emotion out of the panels because he wants the reader to make up their own mind how they feel emotionally about what's happening. So he's trying to make his comics just the facts, is sort of my take on what he's doing artistically. I don't know if it's necessarily always successful, but I feel like he's trying to not color the reader's perspective too much. He's trying to just present things. Like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And one person could read that and go like, oh, that's horrible. And someone else could read that and be like, well, good. I'm glad that happened. You know, um, I feel like that's his ultimate goal. And I actually really wanted to just sort of call out the uh, the sort of section near the beginning where they have the, was it McCray? Um,
2: uh,
3: this guy? Yeah. Thomas Scott. Or
0: oh, that's it. Thomas Scott. Uh, Thomas Scott, uh, who's been locked up and then he's spending morning and night screaming obscenities and racial slurs at everyone until they basically get sick of him and execute him. And so instead of writing all that out, he just does speech balloons with X's in it. And then he puts an asterisk saying, these X's represent racial slurs and uh, profanity. And I sort of thought that that was his way of, like, he didn't want to write a bunch of triggering dialogue that was going to like upset the reader he wanted the reader to understand like this guy is saying awful things the reader can decide how awful those things are and they can sort of take an impression of what happens to him based on his actions without it necessarily being colored by like really extreme triggering language for example or like really extreme triggering visuals Mm -hmm. like I feel like he's really trying to like take all that out and just really present it in a really sterile way
4: I, I agree that he's trying to present it in a sterile way, but it would also be important to understand that the words that Scott, Mr. Scott would be using may not relate. Like, we wouldn't have the same emotional <clears throat> impact, especially right. if we were not you know, Metis in the 1800s. Right. <laughs> so right. it's a way of just saying, like, these are really horrible things yeah. and they feel horrible to the people who are, mm. you know, on the listening yeah. end. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Actually, that's, that was that's, really effective. That's, like that.
0: that's a good point, actually, because again, it's, yeah, if it was a bunch of specific racial epithets that may not mean anything to certain readers where it would really, really be offensive to other readers, I hadn't thought about that.
3: It also, like, as the reader, then you're forced to imagine what they might be. And you're more likely to think of your uh, worst case scenario than if you mm-hmm. were, like, given it on the page. Like, maybe there are words that he would use that would have been terrible then, but are less terrible now. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just imagining here. But if that were the case, then what you wouldn't want is you wouldn't want the reader to read that and say, oh, well, that's not so bad. Right. Because, no, like, in the context, the from the point of view of the people people listening to this, it is bad.
4: Yeah. Yeah, these are people for whom these words would have been hurled at them on a regular basis, right? Mm-hmm. And so they carry a very different weight.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I just I just found, like, um, it's, like, some people say that they feel Chester Brown's work is a little, little sterile, and I almost feel like that's kind of his intent, is he's really trying to sanitize his work in a way so that it's... Like, I think he's really trying to, like, make the reader have to kind of make a decision how they they feel about the work. He's trying to not manipulate the reader in in what he's presenting, if that makes any sense.
1: Well, okay. Yes, but also, like, I wouldn't say he's not trying to manipulate the Mm. reader because I think any decision by Mm. an author, like, nothing is objective. Right. And like, you're trying to present things in a certain way with a certain intention, so mm-hmm. I don't think you can say he's trying to not manipulate the reader, right. because all authors are trying to do that. Right. Further to
4: that point, the the decision to sterilize the emotion is a manipulation. Right. Yes. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. But I am trying to imagine what this work would have been like if there was more mm, passionate anguish in, mm. like, the way the characters and the events were portrayed, and it would have been mm. a different work. Like, <laughs> I feel like maybe by dialing down the expressions uh and the intensity of the facts or as they are portrayed in the book oh i lost my train of thought by (laughs) dialing down these like if there if it was really amped up it might actually induce a negative reaction where it's like oh this is so amped up but i don't believe it
2: Mm -hmm. whereas
4: when you have to bring you basically have to do all the emotional work yourself Mm -hmm. uh in layering your experiences and your interpretation onto these little characters, or sorry, these simplified characters as they are drawn, you don't have that r- adverse reaction mm-hmm, that you mm-hmm. might have. If you, there was, for, for example, like someone who was making a passionate speech that you very much disagreed with.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, like yeah. I, th- I feel like it's the difference between uh, a documentary and a historical drama, where this is mm-hmm. going for the documentary angle of like trying to have that artificial journalistic distance where like these are just the things that happened, uh, which is kind of, I mean, it's artificial. It's not, uh, there is no such thing as objective journalism, Yeah. but he's trying to sort of take that on rather than to be, um, like if I were going to write a story about Louis Riel, I'm sure I would go much more in the direction of the historical drama, just because I think that is more sort of my approach to things Mm. like make, have all these emotions and everything like that. Uh, and I'm not sure which is the better approach I'm not mm-hmm. sure there is a better approach right. but I, th- I think you're right he's he's trying like the the simplicity of everything uh, is is deliberate uh, I'm not sure that it's the only way to do this but mm-hmm. it, it is the way he chose to do it
0: yeah I mean you guys can tell me what you think of this but I almost kind of feel like maybe if if he had a more like a more passionate uh, representation I can see this being a little more divisive in the readership where some people would be like oh this is just propaganda by whatever point of view I disagree with, where because he's trying to sort of distill it down to just, like, the facts, it's a little easier to sneak under some people's maybe initial barriers. But again... Yeah.
4: How these facts right. are curated right. is right. in itself Fair a kind of manipulation. Fair so so yeah. I agree, but you have to be careful mm-hmm. uh, by how far you take that interpretation, right? Yeah. Because Fair you've enough. still... Every, every choice... Mm every choice of moment, every choice of angle is a choice that is framing the situation and framing Mm -hmm. the facts.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know, we could maybe even talk about just like, like the structure of this biography. Like, I, I think I, I found it interesting, like, it just throws you into Riel's like adulthood. You get a little bit about his childhood and like growing up, but not in depth at all. It just sort of like goes straight to the action. Like, these are the events that we're going to cover and these are the events that have significance within this narrative, and it just focuses on those. um,
4: Yeah, it's almost incomplete as a biography because it doesn't Mm. cover the long periods of time where he's exiled in uh, Montana. Montana. Or, like,
1: he was in that asylum, I think, for a period of time, and it's just sort of like, ah, he's in the asylum now, and then, you know, (laughs) Uh cuts back and forth, which, you know, maybe is why it lends itself this sort of to the comics medium because like if you did all that in comics that would be such a long book <laughs> mm. um, but certainly reading this book made me interested in maybe checking out some other biographies to get a more complete picture um, or just mm. a different picture because that's yeah. something i found recently in reading biographies is once i finish one i want to read another one by somebody else to get a mm. different mm. point of view and context
0: that's a good way to do it
1: yeah yeah would recommend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, and he even, um, Brown even offers up some suggestions at the beginning of the book saying, like, you know, this is what I was interested in doing the thing. Here are some books that you might be interested in. And these are sort of the, like, points of view that come from.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, which I really appreciate it. Yeah. Like, I can, despite what I've said about, like, hey, be careful <laughs> about how this is presented and blah, blah, blah. Like, it mm-hmm. does seem like a very well-researched book. It does mm-hmm. seem like Chester Brown has done his best. Yeah, to make sure. it as objective and well researched as he can, mm-hmm. uh, I really appreciated. I did not read them all, but I appreciated <laughs> that there was footnotes specifying I... exactly when he took liberties and which yes. liberties those
0: mm, are. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I was actually going to ask you guys if you'd read the footnotes.
3: Because... Uh, I didn't, but I really liked that they're there. One thing that I because I watch a lot of like historical drama type movies, and my question at the end is always, 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 what did they make up and what was real? Right. Mm-hmm. And movies never answer that. And I'm not going to go read three other books about the same yeah. topic. So, like, I like that if I really want to know, this book has footnotes. I can check.
1: Yes. I love, I love being able to see where did you get your sources? What yeah. are the sources? Mm-hmm. Like, what did you take from where and how are you changing it?
0: Yeah. And I, one thing I liked a lot about his footnotes specifically was that when he made a change, he often would then explain, like, I felt that what was important was this So I did this and this to streamline things, but still communicate this idea. So I felt like he at least had a good rationale for why he was deviating
4: from the -hmm. the facts. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Uh,
4: I browsed the footnotes and some of them were like, he was actually, this person riding away on a horse was actually accompanied by one other person who had no material relevance to what was happening so it's like okay yeah, like so I'm, I, I'm okay with those I didn't want of to draw two horses like, <laughs> it's like fair, like, fair. Like,
3: <laughs> I just want to say this as an aside that I really love the way he drew horses in this they are completely wrong <laughs> like when they're running they, they have like their legs splayed out like forwards and back which is that's not how horses run but people didn't know that in the mid 1800s like we didn't know how horses actually ran until the invention of photography so like the way that the horses are drawn running is the way that someone from 1867 would have drawn them.
1: Okay. Also, I mean, one of my own arguments with my own work because I can't draw things very well is just it doesn't have to be accurate, it just has to be believable. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like or <laughs> clear. Yeah. Believable and clear. Those are the like I feel like important things when you're drawing a comic. Um <laughs> But yeah, his his art style is so simplified. Never questioned those horses once. I also don't know how horses move. I never go outside, and I don't know what animals are.
0: Yeah, I... I when you bring this up, I was like, what? What's your problem with the horses?
3: <laughs> I also really love his caricatures of historical figures. Like, They're incredibly simple, but you would never mistake one character for another character.
4: Yeah, they're very distinct. And you can also spot them as they age.
2: Mm, Yeah. Like, you
4: can relate the same person, which, again, like, is something that I really appreciate uh, in comic versus prose. Because, Mm. again, like, sometimes someone comes up in an early chapter and then they come up later on. You're like, who's this one again? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. Yeah. I... I was I was just gonna mention specifically the uh, guy breaking out of prison scene. Uh, that was one where I had to had to immediately go to the footnotes and be like, that didn't really happen, it did it? Did. And then it, it absolutely totally happened did. exactly like that. Yeah, I could not believe it. I actually like <laughs> went and found my um,
3: like first year Canadian history textbook and read the section on the real rebellion and like it mentioned that episode specifically like that he was in prison and his wife baked like a oh, uh, a knife, knife a pocket knife into a pudding no, and okay. like he used that to like escape from prison <laughs> no, no, no. Like, he a... used
0: that to cut his yeah. jacket into strips uh-huh. and make a rope an entire <laughs> rope to like i don't know a thumbtack and uh-huh. then fall onto snow and that's the only reason he didn't die and then stack up boxes to climb over a wall
4: <laughs> No, it's a it's a cliche but it has a reason to be a yeah. cliche right yeah. you because know it's like in like the 1800s happens. it wasn't a cliche yet and you can get away with it yeah. it's yeah. actually pretty
1: clever hundreds were nuts yeah. um, I definitely was uh, I don't know if a muse is the right word but like you could just decide you were gonna arrest someone if you got enough people together. <sighs> like if you...
3: this is actually a, a mild example of that, they're yeah. like <laughs> lynch mobs of various kinds were like a staple of that time period. Mm. Pretty scary, pretty terrifying in many cases. In this case, it's like okay, they're they're trying to like dial it back and like have an actual sort of trial.
4: <laughs> yeah, you described this as frontier politics, and uh-huh. I think that that's not a phrase that I had heard a lot before but it really rings true because a lot of the events that happen in this book are like oh well we'll do it anyway because there's no police and they're not going to be physically able to stop us so screw Mm -hmm. and
3: if you wait for the police you're going to be waiting a year yeah so yeah you got to do something yeah (laughs) i i
0: i also yeah i mean i don't know just overall like the the politics um make a lot of sense i mean obviously because they're based on real events but i mean i i the, the whole sort of um, situation where they, Johnny McDonald needs to get this railroad built and he can't get the money for it. And then he realizes that if he antagonizes the Métis to a point where they have another uprising, the public will want the army out there. And then if he uses the Canadian Railroad to get the army out there, he can like justify the need for the parliament to fund this railway because his whole ambition is he needs to get this railway built across Canada. So they throw the Métis under the bus just to get this railway built. And they, they did it, guys. So if you ever ride the rails across Canada, that's how we did it. Anyways. Oh, okay. I just want to
3: like <laughs> provide a little context. Because the one thing that I felt I needed more of from this story is more context of why is Johnny McDonnell doing this? Mm. And I think the thing you have to understand about him is that his vision for Canada and A lot of what Canada is, is because of him, because he was the one who like convinced everybody that we should be this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, His vision for Canada is that it is white and conservative and English speaking and Protestant. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, the policies he put in place throughout his career, they don't always line up with that because the only way he can get Canada to be a country is to deal with the fact that half of the population speaks French. But the fact that in 2018, only a quarter of the population speaks French is in large part because of John A. Macdonald, because he succeeded in his goal. He Mm. blocked French settlers during this, like, these events were a major factor in why the West of Canada is Mm. English-speaking. Because the the reason, like, it's sort of implied in this book but not really explained very effectively the quebec voters were generally in favor of riel because he was a francophone and if riel succeeds in his mission of having a bilingual manitoba then francophones outside quebec have a future Hmm. Uh, and if John A. Macdonald gets his way and somehow suddenly there's all these English speaking settlers in Manitoba and they can outvote the French and the Métis, then he succeeds in his ambition to have a, an Anglophone Canada. Mm. Uh, Johnny A. Macdonald was also the one who did the worst treaties with First Nations, like all the, the worst treaties that people were compelled to sign were like under his watch and He wrote a law saying that First Nations people who had signed a treaty and had, like, reserve land set aside were not allowed to leave that land. Mm. Uh, And then he sort of starved them out, like, because the deal was always, like, you get to live on this land. We're going to give you this tiny space of land because we've killed all your food sources. Uh, So we're going to give you food while you learn how to farm. And then the food never came. Yeah. So, like, (laughs) they're they're really, like... Conquering the West was a big part of John A. Macdonald's ambition. And I think we get to see in this book one little window of how he did that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I think um, that's one of the reasons I feel like this is an important book for Canadians to read. I think it gives you like a good perspective. It gives you kind of the counter perspective. Cause I think a lot of people, when they go to high school, they'll take social studies and be like, John A. Macdonald, Founded Canada. He built a railroad. He the railroad. He built the railway. What a great guy. And we don't really hear about like we don't really hear about how the sausage got made. You know, yeah. is yeah. essentially or, what, what it is. What I
4: remember from social studies is like Louis Riel through a rebellion and it's like it was basically that sentence. And yeah. you're like, Well, why did he do that? That seems silly. Yeah. yeah. You know, like and without the rest of this context, it's yeah. really hard for, you know, an eighth grader to form a complete picture of mm-hmm. yeah. of his history and all of its uh it's a nuance. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I, yeah, I think for anyone who thinks that Canadian history is boring, I think this <laughs> this shows you that there's actually a lot of interesting history in Canada.
1: Yeah, I I think <laughs> like us as Canadians and also maybe I'm using us as in we are all white Canadians. Um like, we tend to not remember other histories. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I was talking to some of my uh, friends who are American um, the other night who live in America. And I was saying, oh, I have to finish reading this book because I'm recording a podcast. And they are like, oh, there was a, like, rebellion in Canada? What, what do you even have to rebel about? And I was like, okay, I get that you think <laughs> you're joking right now. But also, I'm just going to send you a bunch of resources. Um, <laughs> because this is really interesting and important and... A lot of these things really impact, like, the lives and well-being of, like, the Indigenous peoples of Canada today. But yeah, they and, continue like, to impact Absolutely. <laughs> and I was like, I'm gonna send you some stuff about the missing and murdered women. And, like, they were like, oh my god, I didn't even know these things were going on. And, like, I don't know. I think we can all do better and be better at educating ourselves and learning more and trying to use our own privilege to help those who need the help I guess mm-hmm. I don't, know. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know no 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 Anyways, for sure I, yeah. and I
3: think comics okay. is a, a great medium to do that in because <clears throat> the the cost of production of a comic book is so much lower than a movie Yeah, like we don't have I don't know if there's a movie version of the story of Louis Riel because even if there was it certainly wouldn't be in theaters because mm-hmm. um, like we don't have, we're too small a country to produce that kind of content but I, you can make a comic and you can like have one person just like here's a bunch of stuff that happened and like get that out there and people can read it
0: yeah yeah i mean and also i mean I saw Passchendaele. We we don't want to we don't want to produce movies okay. about our own history. It's not. It doesn't turn out well.
1: Passchendaele came out when I was in grade
0: ten, and coincided <laughs> with being
1: in Canadian history <laughs> in grade ten, and we had to go see that in theaters no. as part of the curriculum. No. It was bad. That
0: was yeah. yeah. Passchendaele we, was pretty bad. We just you, you don't want to Hollywoodize Canadian history. It doesn't no. work. It's not you
3: gay. shouldn't Hollywood Hollywoodize any history. Really. Yeah. Fair enough.
0: But yeah. Uh, Okay, <laughs> okay. Let's. Should we should we wrap it up? Sure. It sounds sounds like everyone enjoyed it. Uh, maybe we'll. Should we do like, would recommend and shout outs? Is that right?
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh yeah. Um, I would definitely recommend this book. It was really interesting, and I want to read some more biographies. Oh yeah, I'm going to shout out our friends Ian Boothby and Nina Matsumoto. Made a book with Scholastic, and David Dedrick colored it. Uh, it's called Sparks. It's great. They had a book launch recently, and it was super fun and super cute. And I loved seeing them, like, do some drawing and, like, Q&A with kids and stuff. It was really adorable. The book's about this brave cat and this really smart cat, and they team up together to fight crime in a robotic dog suit. And it's just really adorable and fun, and I would absolutely recommend checking it out. It's called Sparks, um, and it's available everywhere. It's doing super well. Go read it.
4: Yeah. Rad. Uh, I would recommend this book, Louis Riel. I thought it was very accessible. I thought it was, as we've discussed, an important thing to read about and would broaden your horizons and it would be a pleasurable experience along the way. So (laughs) definitely check it out if you want, if you've never read it, I think is what I would recommend. Uh, My mainstream shout out this time is for uh, my friend Dershing Helmer, who has her book, Murray and Turnham, kickstarting now
2: yeah it's going to cool. wrap
4: up soon and uh really the well. complete it should
0: it's fantastic yeah. mm-hmm. everyone
4: should invest in this book because We're, it is worth it
0: will we be able to link to it in time i don't
3: know i if think it's got 22 be... days
4: left oh does it today. okay yeah
3: okay mm-hmm. this should be up in time then
4: yeah hopefully um i haven't decided on my copy yet i'm like hovering between like the, the different <laughs> options and i'm like how do we want Hardcover signed, or do I want? The don't book later. forget, I
3: had to. I backed um, Kathleen Jock's book on like the last day because I kept putting it off. So yeah, don't forget. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you I definitely. Uh, you can always change your um, selection later. That's
4: true. Marion Turnham.
3: Right. Do you recommend? Okay. All right. I would recommend this book. I would recommend this book even if you're not Canadian, because history is interesting everywhere. I also wanted to just point out. I don't know if anyone noticed, but uh, in the forward. Our local Colin Upton gets a shout out as being. uh, I assume he was some kind of like reference or like editor for the historical side of it because history is his kind of thing. But yay, local shout out! Oh
0: yeah, no. um, Colin and uh, Chester uh, actually do regular correspondence by mail. Uh, (laughs) So I was I knew that I knew that they spoke regularly, and I was not shocked when I read that in the foreword. Uh, but I had forgotten to bring that up uh, at the start of this podcast. So thanks for mentioning that now.
3: For my shout out, I am going to say uh, I recently reread The Amazing Life of Onion Jack by Joel Pretty. It's probably a pretty hard comic to find because I only know about it from like it's included in a uh, old edition of Best American Comics from like 10 years ago or something. But it's one of my favorite short comics of all time, and it's great. So if you can ever actually get your hands on that, I recommend it.
0: I saw your tweet about that, and I really want to read that now.
3: Yeah, well, I can lend you the the book. It's worth Mm, reading. There we go.
0: All right. Oh, we totally forgot to do websites, by the way. It's fine. No one needs to read our work. It's fine. It'll be double links. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, Um, we'll just cut that. Uh, So, yeah, I'm Jeff Ellis, and I'm going to shout out firebug by johnny christmas i was just at the book launch yesterday and it is his, i think it could be wrong but i think this is his first book through image that he has written and drawn
2: I didn't realize yeah
0: that. and it is about a volcano goddess i have not finished it yet but the art is i think the best art he's made in his career thus far and I'm so excited for future projects from Johnny, and I'm really happy he's doing as well as he
2: is. So, yeah, Johnny Christmas. Yay. I am so sad that I
3: missed <laughs> both of those book launches. <laughs> uh, our next book will be Volumes 1 and 2 of Battle Angel Alita by Yukito Kishiro. Get your hands on
0: Battle Angel for next time. Uh, the Trade Waiters is presented by the Cloudscape Comic Society. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record the, in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com, as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.